Hey, everybody, and welcome to our Tick Bootcamp podcast with our special guest, Jen Russell, who is the CEO, the founder, and the executive director of the Illinois Lyme Association. And I'm here today with a really special co-host, Jenny Butaccio, who's a good friend of ours at Tick Bootcamp, and she was featured on episode 49 of our podcast way back in the day, titled Lyme Made Me Right. So I'm going to hand it over to Jenny, and Jenny's going to walk Jen through her background and get us into what happened, which led her to be a leader in the community and the founder of the Illinois Lyme Association. So Jenny, if you can kick it off and go through Jen's background, please. Uh, first, I just want to say I am very excited to have you on, Jen. Now, for me, you're Jennifer. So if you hear one of us say Jennifer and one of us say Jen, that we're talking about the same person. So, <laughs> uh, but I'm very excited for this. Um, I have been wanting to have you on here for quite some time. I've been begging you to do it. I'm so glad you agreed to do it. So I'm excited. Um, tell me, Jennifer, before Lyme ever even entered into the picture, what was your life like? Where do you live? And what sort of things would you do like every day? Um, before Lyme, wow, long time ago. Um, so I live in a very, very small community in uh, Illinois, up by the Quad Cities in Mercer County. So I live in Alito, Illinois, um, out in the country. So and uh, I think Alito has about 3,500 population. So pretty small, rural. And, uh, you know, we owned a farm with our family, my parents, my brothers, we all lived together. And, um, you know, my husband is an operating engineer and I was a stay-at-home mom. And I had two little kids and some property came open close to my parents and close to my brothers. And we decided to go build a house in this um, lot and um, have been there since... 2012. So very busy stay-at-home mom, did gardening. We have big gardens and um, do a lot of home canning and raise our own meat with our with our family on the farm and just our own little cozy uh, community out there. And since you're on a farm and you're in rural Illinois, did you and your family do a lot of outdoor kinds of things? Yep. So always outdoors, we mushroom hunt every spring and um, we, our family are big hunters. So, um, you know, my husband is a really big hunter and goes on hunting trips. And so being outdoors in the, in the woods was like nothing to us. Um, we own property that has a really big, um, you know, a creek that goes through it and we had, um, a camp set up down there. We had a pavilion and we would go down and go camping there and, and uh, always, always outdoors. And did you know about ticks back then? Uh, yeah, we've always known about ticks. I, um, when I was a kid, you know, my dog would run off and get covered in ticks and come back and I'd sit there and pull them off. And, you know, of course at the time I was a twisted child and enjoyed smashing them <laughs> um but really had no like he knew about Lyme but never really crossed you know never really thought about it um wasn't really on my main radar I guess um not until we bought that property so the property was really brushy and over you know was covered and um 
I came home from there and I had several ticks on me um, when we were cleaning up the property, trying to get it ready to build. And I was like, huh, that's not good, <laughs> you know, but, and I had my kids out there too. And, um, you know, I never found a tick on them, but um, at that point it kind of started um, entering my mind a little more, you know, as a mom, when you're really thinking about it and it affects your kids. So. Had you, so you were noticing them on you, but had you actually been seeing bites? Have no. you been, no. Mm -hmm. No, I had been bitten before when I was a kid. I actually, we always, my grandparents owned property down in Branson, Missouri. And so on vacation, we always went down there and I actually had a deer tick um, on my, on my leg that I had found. And again, young, you don't think about it. And I just grabbed it and threw it in the toilet and that was the end of it. And so I've always wondered if maybe that wasn't um, the bite that kind of maybe started some of my progress that I've always wondered if I have Lyme and maybe, you know, passed it to my kids. But um, so that was that was a time where I still to this day think back and, and wonder. Mm -hmm. Yep. Matt, do you want to jump in and ask Jennifer some questions? I do. And the first thing I didn't want to interrupt before, but for our listeners and for myself, I think you mentioned, Jen, mushroom hunting. Is that what you said? What is that? Yep. Oh, goodness. You've never you've never experienced morel mushrooms. <laughs> so there are wild mushrooms that grow um, on a some certain sides of the hills. You have to look on the south side of the hill and they're usually under elm trees and there are these little mushrooms and you bring them back and you wash them and bread them. And oh, man, it's like heaven. <laughs> So they're all over in our woods in Illinois. There's actually even a map that you can see when they start popping. They have a map that shows it progressing up the state. And oh, they're delicious. Have you ever, and I'm totally going ahead of ourselves here, but have you ever thought about the mushrooms that are available by you locally and if they have any medicinal value? Because mushrooms are huge in the healing, alternative healing community. Um. No, I've never really, never really thought about it. My husband, um, you know, he goes out and gets a lot of mushrooms. Like we are big with like hen of the woods and chicken of the woods and come back and, um, you know, saute them up in the skillet. And um, there's some, some mushrooms, you know, obviously that look alike out here. So you do have to be careful, but um, I always tease him that I'm going to let him eat a new mushroom first. <laughs> And then I'll wait about 15 minutes and see what happens. Uh, Has there ever been an adverse response to your husband eating a mushroom before no, you partake 15 minutes later? No, no, not so far. So we're we're doing good. <laughs> so Jen, tell us about your daughter, Lauren, because we know that's really what inspired you to jump into this, this Lyme advocacy world. It sounds like she lived a relatively healthy life until the time she was about, I think it was seven years old when she was in first grade. So walk us through, you know, what life was like as a child for Lauren. <clears throat> and then what happened when she was seven years old and and really the unknown mystery, quote unquote, illness that she, that she contracted. Mm -hmm. So we, um, you know, Lauren was a was a pretty colicky kid. Um, you know, she was um, your typical col colicky child, hard to hard to keep <laughs> uh, not crying. But other than that, she was she was a great uh, baby and she just, um, she has such a giving heart even at a young age. And um, 
always thinking of others and and she's just I'm so so blessed to have her as my daughter but um she was about 18 months old um and I had her in the car carrier and I set it on the table and I was starting to take her out of the car seat and on her leg I actually seen a tick um now whether in it I I can't remember whether it was a deer tick or a dog tick um I just kind of freaked out and I called my mom and she's like, well, you just need to, you know, be really careful and just pull it out, you know, make sure you get the head out. I'm like, okay. And then never thought anything out of it because I didn't see the bullseye rash, right? You didn't see anything. It didn't look like it was infected. And I just kind of went on my way. Was that the tick that ended up making her sick? I don't know. Um, because it, it just timing wise, we moved out to, you know, we had built our house. We moved out there. And um, we had been there probably, I would say just over a year. And that's when she came home from school and I heard the bus and I heard, you know, heard the bus go on and she didn't come inside and I opened the door and I hollered and she didn't come inside. And so I went outside, like kind of freaking out. And I found her lying in the driveway behind um, my vehicle. And she said, mommy, I'm, I'm, my legs just won't work anymore. I'm too tired. And so I carried her inside and she had a little bit of a fever, um, you know, not bad. I thought, well, maybe she's just coming down with the flu. And through the course of the weekend, it really just escalated quickly. Um, she started vomiting and then vomiting turned into vomiting blood. Um, and I've never told this por portion much, but um, she was vomiting so much blood that our bathroom actually looked like someone was murdered. Um, and so I grabbed her and obviously rushed to the emergency room, which, you know, in a small community out in the rural, that's not like you can get there in two minutes. You know, it's it's a good 15, 20 minutes for me to get to a hospital. So um, they never did find anything other than they said they, they thought she had a mild ear infection. I'm like, this makes zero sense. Um, they did some blood work, said they didn't really find anything. And if she wasn't better by Monday to go see our um, family practitioner. And so that's, she still wasn't better. So that's what I did. And they drew blood again. And they said that she, her white blood count was so low, they are suspecting that she might have leukemia and um, that we probably needed to go out to Iowa City Children's Hospital um, and that her blood was, was showing uh, blasts, which from what I understood it, that they explained, it's basically like white blood cells that aren't fully um, formed and they are they're they're immature and really um just not forming correctly and that can be a sign of leukemia as well jen so, before before this this bus incident and that weekend and now the, the subsequent monday when <clears throat> you went and got the blood testing at your primary care physician were there any indications that lauren was sick prior or did this just come on really yeah. quickly and, sh and she got off the bus and was really really unwell yep just very quickly she didn't there was nothing Absolutely nothing. And not to put Jenny on the spot too much here, but Jenny is our resident medical guru that we love to chat with. So 
the whole white blood cell thing, Jenny, the, the leukemia misdiagnosis and the blast, I'm probably saying it incorrectly. Can you give us some additional insight into that and, and what your thoughts are as far as is that a common misdiagnosis with Lyme and why that may have been in the blood and it could have been related to Lyme disease at the time? <laughs> you really are putting me on the spot. Uh, I don't know if I can answer that, though. That might be above my my pay grade on this one. Um there's, you know, I, I know that there's a, a lot of other people who have who will say that they've had strange white blood cell counts um, on labs, but it's not always low. Sometimes they'll have high, you know, white blood cell counts, too. Um, but in this case, she it sounds like she was vomiting such a large amount of blood that it doesn't seem it, it seems like that could have been connected maybe to some of the white blood cell counts, too. I'm not sure about the bl the blast. That's you know that's beyond <laughs> my, my my scope on the spot. I'd have to do a little research before I before I said anything, commented on that at all. But you know, if you you you've talked to you know thousands of patients, I'm sure it, there's white blood cell counts all over the the the, the spectrum. Uh, yeah, and and that's really what I'm I'm thinking is it's odd because some you know a lot of patients have extremely low blood count, white blood count levels. We've had some people tell us that they were misdiagnosed with AIDS, with, you know, with cancer, with leukemia, right? Other people tell us they have, you know, crazy high white blood cell counts. So it's, it seems to be that it's either really low or really high. And it's generally Lyme triggering both. And 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 I'm not sure why, but that's something fat, you know, interesting, I think, just to, to point out there. But Jen, sorry to interrupt that piece with uh, with that that little dialogue there. But so now, or did you did you follow up and and bring Lauren to this specialist hospital that you were recommended to go see for leukemia? Yep, yep. So we went out to the Iowa uh, City Children's Hospital, and I have never experienced so much stress um, in my life. So basically, they took you in this little room, and they're like, "You need to sign a stack of papers that's like six inches thick." And okay. <laughs> And you need to do it right now because we've got to get Lauren into, um, they wanted to do a bone marrow procedure. And I'm like, okay, well, what am, what are all these? Well, basically you have to sign all these papers for her to be admitted into studies for something you don't even know that she has, but they have, you have to do it in the very beginning or you're not allowed in. Like you have to do it before you're even, you even know. So uh, let me, I, I just want to ask yep. a quick question. So was it sort of procedural because so many of the kids coming there may may require a clinical trial? Is yes. that so they just yes. get enroll you in the beginning so that yep. okay? Yep. Yep. You have to sign sign everything. I, I have no clue any of what those papers said because they literally kept like, you need to hurry up, you need to hurry up, you know, of the team standing outside, um, getting ready to take Lauren, but we have to have all these done. So my husband and I were just sitting there signing papers as fast as we could. That's so nerve wracking. Yes. Um, and so after we got done, then they were getting, they took Lauren and were, were prepping her to get ready to do this bone marrow procedure. And um, thankfully a doctor came in and she's like, you know, I want to do one more blood work before we take her back. And even when you're, when you're sitting there under the stress, then the, then the doctor and the nurse start getting into an oral argument that they, they were yelling at each other that we didn't have enough time. And, and so all you're thinking as a parent is that 
my kid is really like, this is really bad. Like, um, and so finally the doctor just was like, okay, we need to pause. And then she explained to me the reason why they're in such a hurry is because the lab was closing for the day. <laughs> but here us as parents are thinking like my daughter may only have a few minutes to live or something. It was horrifying. Um, so they did end up um, pausing. They did the blood work. Thankfully, I had a family um, friend there that was um, doing some extra schooling. And so he came down and sat with us. And so they did give him the blood work as well to look over to kind of go through it with us. Her white blood count had come up just enough, not very much, but just enough that they're like, oh, well, maybe she doesn't have leukemia because that would not come on come up on its own unless you had chemo. And so then they're like, well, we don't know what it is. Go ahead and go home. <laughs> so just go home. We don't know what it is, but sorry. Nope. Sorry. We, we don't, we're pretty certain it's not leukemia. We really still don't know, but go home. So um, they said, she's, you know, have her resume her normal activities. Well, she had a fever in public school. You can't go to school if you have a fever. So she actually was home for a month um, because she couldn't, she couldn't go back. You have to be 24 hour fever free and um, the school ended up and her mm -hmm. symptoms didn't improve, right? I mean, she yeah. was still had a fever. She was still fatigued. She was still weak, right? So she wasn't feeling any better. No, she was gray as a ghost. Um, she she just, she looked sick, um, but they just kept telling me. And then I had a doctor call me um, and go, you know, check in on her. And I said, look, I, I want to know what's going on with my kid. And he's like, uh, ma'am, we're not going to spend a million dollars testing her for everything under the sun to figure out what's wrong with her. And, you know, at the time I, I think back and I wish I would have said, well, I didn't realize you were spending any money because it's my insurance and myself that's spending. I should have been witty enough to, but I didn't think about it. And I was like, okay, you know, but, um, now I would have, <laughs> um, but back but you, then. But you're not alone in that, Jen, right? Yeah. So many of us, myself included, we just were used to going to the doctor. They yep. tell us what's wrong. If we need, they give us medication and we feel better. Yep. We're used to the acute illness industry, which is you catch something. If you if you feel sick enough, you go to the doctor, you get a pill, you go home and you feel better. And that that's yep. the pattern we're used to. We're not used to doctors not being able to help us and not being able to get us better. So we're not we're not informed enough to be able to push back. And frankly, the fact that we have to is is stressful and, and, and difficult. But thankfully, that's where you are now. Right. Yep. So. This it, you you're on the you're really on this doctor merry-go-round where you're seeing all these different doctors are telling you it's not cancer it's not this it's not that just just deal with it what are you doing so the, this one month period of of Lauren being home what do you do next and how does her health continue to you know be impacted by everything um pretty much stayed ab about the same um for this for this month um we had the school come in they were doing you know the teachers were coming to our house and trying to teach her but she just uh, there was no there was no way um she was just just wanted to lay down she was literally going we were going every other day to do blood work to check her blood counts so you know you got to think this is a 7 year old kid every other day doing blood work for a month um and so that alone brings in a lot of PTSD for children. Um, you know, even adults would have that. Um, so it was starting to get really a struggle, but then it was 
she just all of a sudden started getting better. Like the last few, um, I would say the last week of, of when that, you know, monthly time was, she started kind of boosting up and was getting a little bit better. And then I'm, the fever was gone and we're like, okay, maybe it was just this long-term virus or something that the doctor was kind of guessing that it was. And so she ended up going back to school. And um, then in second grade, she came downstairs. And when you're a mom, you know, when your kid is like, there's something wrong with my kid. Like there's really something wrong. Um, she came downstairs and she just had this look on her face and she's like, mom, I can't remember how to add. I'm like, what do you mean you can't remember how to add? She goes, I don't remember how to add. I don't remember what I did at school yesterday. Um, so that was one of those, like, what is going on? Um, the teacher even contacted me and said, Jen, something's going on with Lauren. I don't know what it is, but I, I am spending so much more time with her than I am any other children because she's not retaining anything. So we did went through the whole, like all these tests at the school and, and nothing. And still, again, it's like a period of time where she's just not good. And then she was okay. And then not good and okay. And we're doing constant doctor visits and constant testing of different things and testing foods and all kinds of things during this time. And then in third grade, the teacher called me and she thought she was having some sort of seizure. Um, she said her eyes were kind of rolled up in her head. Her face looked kind of funny. Um, you know, I've always wondered if that wasn't some sort of Bell's palsy type thing forming. Um, and still nothing. We uh, went and did brain scans. Um, and at this point, you know, as a mom, you're still sitting there every single minute of the day that you have Googling <laughs> what is wrong with my child because you're not not getting any answers from the medical community. It was just horribly frustrating. Um, and it was about at that time that I, I was Googling her top like three or four symptoms. And every single time it would come up Lyme disease on Google. Every time. And I'm like, I mean, but you, you have this sense in your head of, you know, you're supposed to look for the bullseye. <laughs> you what know? were the top symptoms you were Googling? Um, so like fatigue, um, the memory loss. Um, at that point, she was starting to have joint pain um, in, her, in her joints. Um, I think those were, that's a long time ago, but that's that's pretty much, you know, those things. And it just, it just kept coming up. It just kept coming up. And fourth grade was when she was at her worst. So fourth grade, um, she was sleeping about 12 to 16 hours a day. She would go to school when she could. She could not remember anything that she did once she got home off the bus. Um, you ask her how her day is. She had no idea what she did. Um, the teachers could tell in her face she looked ill and were just letting her sleep at her desk. They felt so bad. She started having um, light sensitivities. Um, the lights at school bothered her. And so they just, they literally, she said one day that uh, a teacher just sat there and just rubbed her shoulders because she just looked so ill. And um, it wasn't until we were driving in the car 
and she lifted her arm up over her head and I seen a bullseye rash in her armpit. And I'm like, I took a picture and sent it to my husband because that looks like a Lyme disease bull bullseye. I'm like, everything I'm Googling is saying Lyme disease. Like what is going on? And then I looked at the other one and she had two in the other, in the other armpit. Took it to her pediatrician and she's like, yeah, I don't think that's Lyme. It doesn't look like Lyme, um, probably ringworm. <laughs> Um, took her to another doctor, like a, just a doc in a box. And she said the same thing. Nope. That's like, that's ringworm. It's not, that's not Lyme disease. Um, I said, I want to test. I want her to be tested. So again, at the time, not knowing the test issues, test came back negative. And I'm like, well, maybe it's not Lyme disease. Um, and so from there, about, I would say a couple weeks later, um, the pain that that child started to experience in her knees and her legs was horrific. Um, we have knee, knee pain being knee a pain. classic hallmark symptom yes. of Lyme disease, right? Knee yep. pain is a classic symptom. I mean, these are all three bullseye rashes. <laughs> every symptom you're Googling is coming up Lyme disease, but yet every single doctor is saying it's not Lyme disease. And yes. that's the part that is extremely frustrating to hear time and time again. And I'm sorry for interrupting, but it's just still blowing my mind. that She, she had the hallmark symptoms of Lyme and, yep. and nope, no Lyme disease. Nope, no Lyme disease. I uh, Doctors I spoke to, that's an East Coast issue. We don't have Lyme disease here. Um then I talked to one doctor. They didn't even want to talk to me about it. Um, the pediatrician did put her on um, antibiotics at that point um, just because I think uh, she kept getting kind of some chronic uh, ear infections and stuff like that. So she put her on these antibiotics. And every time she go on the antibiotics, symptoms started going away. Like every time. And I'm like, Doc, this there's there's a pattern here. Like she's go she's taking these antibiotics, symptoms are starting to go away. This has to be something bacterial. Now, I don't think this is I don't think this is connected to what was what happened before. I just don't I just don't, I think they're two totally separate things. Um at this point they had her living on ibuprofen, which a child should not be living on ibuprofen. Um just she couldn't. She couldn't walk down the stairs. I had to start carrying her down the stairs because she just would cry um, from the pain she was experiencing. So the doc did finally send us to a pediatric infectious disease. Um, he flat out denied that it was Lyme again, and but basically told her, well, even if it was, we consider her treated. She's fine. She may have some residual, you know, um, symptoms, but it's not the disease and she's fine. So then we went to a pediatric rheumatologist um, and that rheumatologist um, took me out in the hallway and told me that Lauren needed uh, psychiatric help, that she did the bullseyes to herself. And, and she's how old at this? Uh, 10. Yeah, 10. And she also threatened me and said that, I know you think this is Lyme disease. I know what Lyme disease is, and this is not Lyme disease. Um, yeah, so that was really my 
that that at that point I was done with mainstream medicine for the most I mean, you part. you I mean, saw every type of specialist, yeah. countless doctors, and they're all telling you no, 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 no. I mean, how can a ten year old child create these bullseye rashes, not knowing that they're? It just it seems so bizarre. These comments aren't even logical, rational comments being made which is just so odd that everybody's breaking their neck to say it can't be Lyme disease. And that's, it's just very curious that it's that, that's, you know, do you think it's because they, they, so they truly believed Lyme doesn't exist where you live? Or do you think there's more deeper political and controversial implications where they didn't want to be bothered by a potential Lyme case? You know, where do you think they were all these doctors when, when they're making these outrageous comments? I think, I think both. I had one doctor, as soon as I mentioned Lyme disease, turn around and walk the other direction. Um, didn't even want to speak about it. Um, but I think just like her, the bullseyes were small. So they're, so all they think about and all they're taught is that these bullseyes grow to these big, big bullseyes, these big rashes. And hers were very, very small. And so they just were not putting two and two together. I myself went home from that appointment and started digging in um, you know, medical studies and found one. And I, I cannot, to this day, I can't find it. I, they probably pulled it off the internet on purpose, but um, they, it talked about how in a later stage of Lyme disease, you can have very small bullseyes and they don't grow. They don't act like your, your acute bullseye. And you can have multiples, which she had three. She had one in armpit, two in the other. And it talked about how it can follow where the disease is progressing. Well, in my opinion, it was on her lymph nodes and her armpits. And um, yeah, so I, I think they just, there were several of them that said there was no Lyme in Illinois, that that was an East Coast issue. I just think it's, um, you know, the doctors just weren't educated. They just weren't educated. What year uh, was do you think this was? Oh gosh, um, I think I can help because she got sick in 2012, and this is about three to four years later, so maybe yeah. 15, 16. Yeah, I could say about maybe 15. Yeah, I'd say that's right around the time in Chicago where doctors were starting to know more about Lyme, but in 2014, we had for like uh, may, you know, like a, a group of patients had gotten together in 2014 and we went downtown to Chicago. They came from all over Illinois. We went to downtown Chicago where the, um, Illinois med society is located. And we did, it was like a peaceful protest, but it was like a, a kind of an, a, more of an awareness protest where we had signs and we were trying to like talk to doctors and I mean, they were just all laughing at us. I mean, they literally were in our in our faces going, there's no Lyme here. And, you know, you guys are crazy. And they were laughing. Like, I was in tears by the time we left that that protest because I thought, I can't, I can't fathom healthcare providers, which that was my background, healthcare provider of like, uh, uh, you know, just totally disbelieving patients. So if this was around just for additional context, if this sounds like this is right around that time, yeah, the 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 patients in Illinois were absolutely being mocked. Uh the doctors did not know about it. There were few they were the doctors that treated Lyme were few and far between. Most patients were having to go like 
far out of state for any kind of treatment. I mean, it was a, it was very little knowledge about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 on that note, I think the the symptom of the cognitive decline, right? So the I I can't do math anymore. I don't I can't add. I don't know what I learned in school today. That's that's a new symptom. That's really scary, right? I mean that that's a brain related symptom. And I mean, I had the same thing. I shared with you, Jen, offline that when I was really sick, I could barely communicate. I couldn't speak. I mean, I people wouldn't understand what I was trying to convey when I was trying to talk about simple things. Mm-hmm. And Lauren was going through a similar experience where she couldn't, re- granted she was a young child, but she was not being able to do things she should be able to do at that age. And I, I'm grateful for people like uh, Jim Miller, who's a, an elite UFC athlete, is really, really advocating right now. He just, he just won another fight. He came back after his Lyme journey and he's about to fight in UFC 300. But his biggest thing he keeps sharing all over the, the, the media outlets are there was a time period where I couldn't remember anything. I, he goes, even looking back, that three-year window, there's very little I can recall from that time period where I was really sick neurologically from Lyme. And my wife has to remind me of things that I have no recollection of. And in fact, I was doing things during that three-year window. And I'd go walk and just be confused, like, where am I? And he'd be in his own house, not recognize his living room or his kitchen. So that is how severe Lyme can be. But yet it seems so scary and that there's no way that could be Lyme disease. So we're thankful for you, for all the advocacy you're doing and everybody else, because these are real severe symptoms that can be related to Lyme disease. But the thing is, not everybody has these symptoms, right? It's just some people have the neurological implications, some people don't. And again, it can be different strains. It can be how it interacts with our body. There's a a passive blood-brain barrier. There's so many things that I think determine whether or not you have that type of symptom. But for sure, it is related to Lyme disease. And I think that may have turned a lot of doctors off as well back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she. I mean, she, Lauren had played guitar since she was nine. Um, and there were days where she would hold her guitar upside down. She could tell that it was wrong, but she couldn't figure out how to fix it. You know, she had lost, she couldn't remember what a laundry basket was called. She couldn't remember what a chair was called. I mean, she was starting to lose all of that. And you know, that's very scary, um, very scary. And I I contacted um, one of the neurologist departments to get a copy of her brain scans. And the nurse actually asked me how she was doing. She was the one that was helping us that day and um, that we did the test. And I told her, I said, we're just, she's not any better. She just is continually getting worse. And this memory loss is really concerning to me. And she said, very quietly in the phone, have you checked into Lyme disease? And I said, well, it's very interesting that you say that because yes, we just got an appointment with a doctor that is supposed to know more about Lyme disease. And that's what we we, we think we're dealing with here. And she said, good. She goes, don't, um, she goes, you need, you need to pursue that avenue. And so that's what we did. I didn't know that. That's a a new detail to the story that I didn't know. Yeah. Um, Before you go into to that part of it, there's a a little there's also a little confirmation in your story of from another sort of unlikely source. Yes. So um, right before this happened, It was probably about, uh, I would say around a month after Lauren had gotten these bullseyes and we were kind of chasing this around and trying to figure this out. Um, I was out in the yard 
and uh, my dog just literally like started howling. I've a, had a puppy basset hound um, named Charlie and started kind of howling and dragging his legs. And I'm like, what is going on with this dog? And um, rolled him over and the dog had the exact same bullseye on his stomach. Thankfully had, you know, a white, white fur and barely any hair on his tummy, but he had the exact same bullseye. I have Lauren's bullseye and, and his bullseye. And, and um, of course we ran him to the vet and he's like, well, he's got Lyme disease. I'm like, can you diagnose my child? Because I know that's what's going on here. And he he kind of chuckled. I wish I could, but he goes, you need to keep pursuing it because um, a lot of what she's experiencing sounds like that's probably what it is. So I took the pictures. I went to the pediatrician and they still weren't convinced. <laughs> it's so crazy that vets are more Lyme aware than, yeah. you know, human doctors, right? Whether it's a primary care doctor or a specialist. And we hear it all the time that that vets know more about Lyme and can better diagnose Lyme in, in pets and sometimes unofficially in humans than regular doctors can when we go see our doctors. So it's just it's just another thing that really blows my mind there. Yeah. So tell us about so you, you have all this in your mind. You have the dog experience. You have the whisper in the phone about Lyme disease. You have your intuition and all your research leading to Lyme. So did you do some Googling and find a Lyme litter doctor? And is that yep. who you decided to yep. go see? Yep. And it wasn't, you know, at the time, that's when uh, a lot of the doctors were still underground. <laughs> um, and so their names weren't easy to find. Um, of course, I didn't, you know, do social media at the time. So I didn't know, you know, about the groups and stuff. But um, so I did find, um, you know, Dr. Kelly's um, information and got an appointment to see her. And we went up there and you know, she said, she goes, I think that this is what she's dealing with and let's do a blood work. And it came back the first, um, she just did a typical Western blot, but through Igenics, um, and it came back positive. And was, it, was that Dr. Casey Kelly in Chicago? Yep. yep. Okay. Another, another connection there with, uh, with Jenny, we've had her on the podcast and, and, uh, she comes on every May for a, uh, Lyme awareness month live that we do. Yeah. Okay. So she's really, she's really wonderful. And, and she, she knows all the right tests and, and frankly, sometimes a clinical diagnosis can yeah. be, can be sufficient, right? Cause yeah. we know even the best testing and even the private labs that don't take insurance that cost a lot of money may not be perfect. And we will, we know they're not perfect. Right. So yeah. thankfully you found Dr. Kelly. So. I am curious, now that you see Dr. Kelly and you have a positive test, do the other doctors that you're seeing even believe it or validate it? We've had people say, I got an hygienics test or I got this test through a specialist. And my doctors still say, eh, we don't believe that. That's crazy. You know, so what was what happened after that? Um, I never spoke to him again. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, I mean, really, I just I never I never looked back. Um, you know, people have asked me, do you ever want to send them, you know, a letter and tell them and, um, it's like, will it do any good? I don't, I don't know. I mean, they have their beliefs and, and, um, you know, a lot of our local docs, um, I know that now where we're at now, they have changed kind of the way they have, th they are thinking, but, um, some of those bigger, you know, the infectious disease and all of them, they aren't, they aren't going to they're going to change their mind. So there's no point in putting energy into that. Um, I'm just moving forward and figuring out how to get my kid better. So we know there's a three-year window of 
basically no diagnosis of, of suffering and doctors. And then you finally get a diagnosis. And we know from your story online and from chatting offline that it's about a four year window now of treatment to get to remission. So can you share with our listeners a little bit about what you did, what doctors you saw and what treatment you did that were successful to help get Lauren her health back and get into remission. And today she's 18, I believe, right? She just turned yeah. 18 and, and she's doing well. So if you can kind of give us that, 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 you know, an overview of that four year window of treatment and that's a really powerful story because of how sick she was. And a lot of people listening to this have lost hope. So I really want to focus on this because no matter how sick you are, and you you know, you know stressed how sick your daughter was, people shouldn't give up. They should keep trying, keep yeah. fighting, and keep doing things. It may not be a short journey, but yeah. we can feel better. We can make progress, and we have to keep trying. And that's the most important thing here, I think. Yep, yep. So we, we started um, on antibiotics. Um, did amoxicillin first. Um, they did that for about three months and then um, she went off and then started to relapse. So we went back on um, and then added in azithromycin with what we did and did that for another three months or so. Um, might've been a little longer. Came off again, relapsed. Um, she just couldn't come off the antibiotics. And so um, at the time, this is about when I started doing my own local support group. I kind of started finding more people in the, in the quad city area that had it. And so I just thought, well, why don't we just get together and meet? Um, and so we started a support group and, um, it was through that, that I met, um, Dr. Alfred Miller. I don't know if you've ever had him on before. No. He's um, a wonderful retired male trained physician, rheumatologist in Texas. I met him and he came on and did um, kind of like a, a webinar, just, you know, an event with us. And that's when I learned about Flagyl and that if she had been on it for, or she had had Lyme disease for a long time, that she might need something to break open that biofilms and, and flagell. So I talked with Dr. Kelly about it. Um, she said, I'm willing to try it. Um, so we did. And, you know, through the course of all of the antibiotics that she was doing and some supplements, um, she was getting better. She was improving. You could slowly see these symptoms kind of slowly dropping off. Um, so about the time we started the flagell, we also started doing lymphatic massage. So through the whole time that Lauren was ill, her lymph node systems was really like her lymph nodes um, in her neck and stuff were always pretty swollen. So I found um, a friend of mine that she did massage. She goes, I'll go get trained in lymphatic massage. So she did. And we started doing lymphatic um, drainage massage and then started the flagell. And I'm not kidding, within a very short amount of time, Lauren was almost symptom-free. Wow. Um, and you could see like every time she did a massage, the next day she would herx. Um, there was some neurological stuff that she was herxing. And then, but every time it was like she could get more and more distance in between each massage um, because it was lasting longer and she was flushing that stuff out. Um, and so... I'm a country girl that is not a big city girl. So the stress of driving in Chicago was really <laughs> taking a toll on me. 
Um, so I we did find a doctor then in Mort, Morton, Illinois, which is around Peoria, that was also Lyme literate um, trained. And so we started going there um, and she was absolutely wonderful. She kept her on the meds, uh, the antibiotics for a short time and and Lauren was, you know, still progressing. And once that final fatigue was the last symptom that really hung on, um, once that dropped off, uh, we switched and went to an herbal protocol beyond balance is what we did. Uh, is there anything else that's noteworthy, Jen, that was, you feel helpful or successful in your, in Lauren's healing journey that our listeners could benefit from? Um, Definitely infrared sauna. That was another thing we did. Um, and she really enjoyed that. Did how you long... buy one or did you? Oh, sorry, Jane. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how like, yeah, that's a good question. Did you buy one? But then also since Lauren was only like 10 years old, how long were you doing it? Um, so nope, I just made my own, <laughs> um, Googled how to make my own. And so I, I did, and, um, she was doing it a lot, like, I think it was like 15, 20 minutes was what we did. It was a lot less than, you know, what an, an adult would do. But, um, and then we weren't doing it as often. We were maybe a couple days, a couple days a week. Um, you know, you got to make sure they're really, really drinking water. So you almost have to sit there with them, you know, on the outside and making sure they're drinking water and stuff. But yeah, the sauna was big. Um, definitely the lymphatic drainage. Um, I believe she was still at this time taking like Alka-Seltzer gold. We talked about, you know, that, um, that does have some help with not really feeling very, you know, feeling yucky. Um, and the metronidazole, flag, flagell. Yeah. Metronidazole. Yep. And the big one was just the flagell that really mm -hmm. brought it around, but it can be a harsh and harsh antibiotic, you know, you really as a parent, it's hard to sit there and think, okay, what do I do? Do I do an antibiotics that you know are going to probably destroy her gut? <laughs> um, but oh, we did a lot of, of probiotics. Like um, Dr. Kelly had her on um, VSL number three, like the high powered VSL number three. Um, trying to think of the other one that we did. Um, Sacculardus velarde was another one that we did. Um, and I do feel like, you know, she still has minor gut issues, but it could have been worse. Um, I do feel like they really had uh, an effect on kind of doing some protection of her gut. It's a balance. I mean, yeah. you, you know, you really need the big guns to help because of how sick she was. So I think the flagell was a necessary evil. Thankfully, you knew enough from your own research and, and you, your guidance from Dr. Kelly and others that you had to do these herbals at some point to rebuild your gut and your immune system. You had to do lymphatic, lymphatic massages to help drain all this stuff out. The sauna was huge from a detox standpoint. And all these things help support the liver, help support, you know, just everything function as a whole. So I think if you didn't do all those things, the potential damage may have been a lot worse if you were just doing flagell without all these other things that were supplementing it to keep things moving and support, you know, other organs and, and systems in the body. Yeah. Yeah, she was on a lot of supplements. I couldn't tell you what they were to the to right now. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of them for her brain and brain clarifications and, you know, trying to keep, you know, your brain firing on all cylinders together. The, um, I, 
believe she was on a fish oil at one point, but um, I can't remember, you know, brands or names or anything, but um, yeah, she was, she was really improving. And then we did the, did the beyond balance and we did that for the rest of the four years. Um, and like I said, to this day, she literally like, as, like as of today, the only thing she still takes is lorisidin. That's the only thing she still takes. She doesn't take any other supplements. So Jen, I that's, want you, oh, sorry, Jenny. <laughs> that's great. Please jump in. That, no, that's great news. I mean, that that's very encouraging for listeners um, to hear uh, both as a patient, but then also if you're a parent whose child is struggling, um, it's, it's great news and it's important to hear that children can be as sick as Lauren was and, you know, find better health and um, have some moments of having actual ch child and a teenager life, you know, having some semblance of, of normalcy. So um, tell us a little bit about, so as you're going through this, at what point did you start to notice, hey, there's some, there's a bigger mission here where we have to start reaching out a little bit more and connecting with other people and, you know, birthing something bigger than just ourselves? Yeah, I would say probably, I had probably been doing the Quad City support group, I would say about a year. And everybody just kept saying, like, we, we need like this needs to be bigger. Like we need, like there's so many people out there. Um, so uh, I would say it was about 2017. 2017 was when um, Lauren and I started talking about expanding and what we need to do. What is our next step to help people? Um, she's the one actually that came to me and said, mom, we need to do something because I don't want anybody to go through what I have been through. They should not have to do this. It should not be this hard. And um, so we started, you know, trying to figure out what that was. And, you know, there was also a portion in our in our family, which I will say this, that thankfully my husband had a great job that, she, you know, we could afford these meds. Uh, we had really, really good insurance. Um, and so we were fortunate and didn't have that, that a lot of people do have a uh, struggle with. Um, but we were able to, you know, care for Lauren and get her meds and get them paid for and didn't, um, you know, didn't have to struggle. But there was a time around this time that my husband's like, you may have to, you know, depending on how long this goes, you may have to go get a job to help cover some of these um, medical costs. But um, we talked to the family and figured out this is a different, there, there was a more important um, issue that really needed to be, to be handled. And that was what we felt was legislation. We, we needed change in legislation. So Jen, I just want to quickly highlight a couple of things and then ask Jenny to walk you through all of the awesome things that you've done for our community, because a lot of our listeners know that things have been getting a little bit better, mm -hmm. and I don't think they fully understand how much change has been made over the last five, 10 years in our community. I mean, 
you single, I shouldn't say single-handedly, but you led the charge to get laws put in place to grant doctors immunity to treat Lyme outside CDC guidelines, which are antiquated guidelines, right? That's huge. You also, you also led the charge to have insurance companies cover Lyme treatment in your state. You've been appointed to task force, task forces. You've been advocating at the federal level, at the state level, all these elected officials to make them aware of what's going on. And you're still you're still doing this, right? You've made a lot of accomplishments. You have some things in the hopper now, and you're 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 not going to stop. So, Jenny, do you mind walking us through some of the really cool things that Jen has done, and many of which Jenny you've been a part of? So it's really cool to see how Jenny is now partnered with Jen and the Illinois Lyme Association, and all of the really cool things you've done and been able to you know the progress you've made in our community that may not have enough attention that it that it deserves. Well, I'm just along for the the ride. I can't <laughs> can't take any any credit. Jen's the Jen Jennifer's the 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 force of nature that just keeps going. Um, yeah. T- so you mentioned that you you know you started noticing legislation needed to be in place. How do, how was that something that you noticed was a concern? And then once you noticed it was a concern, how'd you get that ball rolling? Um. It was basically my interactions with the with the medical providers. The doctor literally turned when I mentioned Lyme disease, literally turning around and walking away from me. Um, no one wanting to, you know, admit that Lyme disease could be in Illinois. Um, the other part was when my pediatrician, you know, she had given Lauren that that 14 days of antibiotics when I was, you know, really at that point where I'm like, I think this is Lyme disease. She told me, she says, I can't, I can't treat, I can't give her any more than 14 days. I can get in trouble. I'm like, what do you mean you can get in trouble? She's like, well, these are the guidelines. Um, and I, I can get in trouble if I treat outside of that. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. You need to do what's good for the patient. And if the antibiotics were helping, why can't you continue, um, you know, to give those? So um, I I just, Lauren and I decided we were going to go meet with our local state rep, uh, Dan Swanson, who, you know, a lot of people know have become the big champion of, of Illinois uh, for that. And so we met with him and um, he was sitting there in awe of the story and could not believe that we could not get care um, in Illinois, basically, and that, you know, we talked about how all the East Coast doctors, a lot of them were under fire and, um, you know, getting it called into medical board hearings. And um, he was a freshman. He was a brand new state legislator, hadn't done any major legislation. Um, it's like, well, are we going to j- jump in and <laughs> take the bull by the horns or um so he he wanted to do some thinking about it and um, just called me out of the blue one day and he said, let's do this. And I'm like, oh, goodness, <laughs> what did I just get into? Um, and so we we did and we filed our first piece of legislation that gave doctors immunity to treat outside CDC guidelines and then set up um, the task force. And. That was when things really started getting real. The Med Society, they started calling in stakeholder meetings, the Med Society, IDPH, everybody was sitting at a table and um, 
hearing Lauren's story, the um, association of um, DOs was there, um, all these people sitting at a sitting in a meeting discussing our bill. And by hearing Lauren's story, this wasn't an audio recording, right? She's yep. how old and and doing what? Yep, she was 10, 10, still 10, around 10 years old when we started in 2018. And she was um, going to the Capitol yep. and sharing your story in front of how many people? Well, at this point, stakeholder meetings, it was just, you know, a few of us. I brought a couple mm -hmm. people from, um, you know, around the state to go sit in and, and kind of share their story, too, that it wasn't just Lauren. And... Um, and the med society obviously was very much against it um as surprisingly the nurses association was very much against it um but we really started having people call their legislators we're getting ready for our first committee hearing um call their legislators share their story start this grassroots movement of you've got to start talking to your legislator about this um it became very quickly to the state med society that we had um, we had amazing support with legislators. The the people in the community really rallied and started calling legislators and sharing, and that really was the start of of a, a big legislative support in Illinois. Let me just add a, a note on that. So separate from um, the efforts that. Jennifer and Lauren were doing with uh, Rep. Dan Swanson, we had a, a patient support group on uh, Facebook and we had had some little meetings around um, Illinois at different places, like in-person meetings as well. But we had a, a, a Facebook group um, that was really just um, open to Illinois residents. And um, I think at that point, it had maybe 12 or 1300 um, members in it. It's very hard. It can be very hard to mobilize the Lyme community sometimes because it's such a sick group of 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 people. Um, but in this case, when the patient saw that Je Jennifer and her daughter were doing this, this was something that like I've not seen that group of twelve hundred people ever really get behind to the extent that we were able to get behind Jennifer. I mean, it's really something. And when she says we that the patients were on the phone calling senators, we really were. I mean, there had to be hundreds of us that were calling. We were emailing. We were telling these legislators, we are your constituents. You know, this is an issue for us. Please support this bill. And we were even calling and following up, asking them, how'd you vote on this bill? Like, I mean, we, and we didn't do this just for like one day. We did this for months at a time, um, following these pieces of legislation as they were introduced. And as they went through the house, it was a, I mean, it was a, it was a big deal to get all of the patients going. So Jennifer's ha has her, had her efforts. And then we had at that time, this separate support group that just helped give extra moment, momentum to, um, what she was doing. Yeah, we were, we were down at the Capitol. Lauren was down there. We did committee hearings. Lauren testified, um, shared her story. Um, the look on the legislator's face when this 10 year old child brings out her medical book <laughs> that is about four inches thick. Um, you know, the look on their face was like, wow, this is, this is very unfortunate. 
And then as we're sitting in the committee hearing, they're going around talking and come to find out the majority of them on the committee hearing knew someone with Lyme. They knew someone with Lyme and knew how ill they were. Um, and we just kept doing our part down at the Capitol and going from door to door to door and talking to everybody, talking to committee members. Um, Rep Swanson was, was talking to his legislative friends. Um, he was meeting with the Med Society again, trying to work out amendments. We had several amendments um, and things that they could kind of live with. The big thing with Illinois, it may not be this way in other states, it is here, is you, you have to work with the stakeholders to try to come up with a compromise. Um, they really do push that. So, you know, even our bill may not be worded exactly the way, way we want it to be. Um, it's, it's a compromise, right? Um, that's just part of the legislative process. And, you know, the day that it passed, um, we had the final, final vote and to sit there and watch it and everybody, but one legislator voted yes. Um, and this was for four, five, one, five. Yeah. Um, but there was a little hiccup in there, though. It, well, it, that came a little bit later, didn't there? Yeah, there was a lot of hiccups, but yeah. <laughs> but that was all stuff that we did on the on the back end, you know. But anytime I needed, like, if we had a committee hearing, I had written out like who like who exactly were the committee members and who everybody needed to call, and so the the community really rallied up and, and focused and contacted that small group of people and. I had legislators in the hallway say, will you please have people stop calling my office? <laughs> they were getting so many calls, um, but it worked. It worked. They figured out there was more than just Lauren. There was more than just, you know, one or two people that were down at the Capitol working. Um, that's where the grassroots movement, and that is the way that politics is supposed to work. You know, it really is. Um, I mean, I remember you telling us there were very few uh, that the legislators were saying there were the very few issues that ever got this kind yeah. of um, community response, that they were really shocked that it had the the level of community response. There's only a few hot button issues yeah. <laughs> that cover the whole, you know, that like the whole country gets behind that that um ignite that kind that level of response from their constituents um but you had said you had i just want to say like so if if people who are thinking of doing legislation of some sort um in their states you know you said like you had made a list of who to call like you actually organized that very well for patients you you like each report that you gave to the group was you know what the bill name was specifically what it did and you you gave links to who to you know specifically where to go to find who to call you you gave um links to the witness slips that we filled out i mean you put it all right there mm -hmm. so we didn't have to go hunting around and looking all over because if we would have if we had to do all these extra steps it wouldn't have happened. So it was really laid out like in almost bullet pointed fashion, where it's just very easy for a patient who has some cognitive challenges happening to be able to, to figure out. I mean, that was a, a big key is organizing that piece of the information for the patients. 
Yep. And coaching people on elevator speeches. You, you have to be quick on your elevator speech. You can talk, you know, one or two things about yourself, but otherwise you have to be asking them, you know, please support this bill um, that it affects my family. You, you really have to be good at elevator speeches. So that was, that was another aspect on, you know, every, every line patient has a story and, and unfortunately it's a very long story. Um, but when you're speaking with legislators, it has to be very quick because they are so busy and have, you know, 10,000 other topics that they're, that they're hearing from constituents on that they just need to know this affects me. I'm your constituent and I want you to support it. Yep. It's a, it's, it's a quite a process learning the, and I had no legislative background, none. This was literally, for the most part, I was being coached by Rep Swanson and he was helping me learn the process and how this works, which obviously he was kind of in a way learning himself. And um, we have just become two, you know, great partners on how to navigate all of this um, that's worked out very well. And then the governor vetoed it, <laughs> vetoed a portion of it. <laughs> Yeah, talk um, about that. Yeah, talk so, a little bit about that. Which which parts uh, passed and which parts vetoed? So the whole thing passed in the legislature, and then it goes to the governor to sign. We um, there was some meetings with the governor. Lauren actually went and spoke to the governor three different times. He told her he would sign it, but he kept not signing it. We're trying to figure out what's going on, um, and then it came out that he line item vetoed and removed the doctor immunity. Um, kept the task force took out the doctor immunity. Um, that I attribute to the IDPH director at the time. Um, he gave him some horror stories of some things that have happened and the governor listened to him. That's his you know, person um, and listened to him. And um, so then, you know, Rep Swanson kind of had to come back and figure out, do I try to go back and override his veto? So in a political setting, you know, at the time the governor was a Republican, Rep Swanson is a Republican, and typically you don't override your own governor. <laughs> um, but Rep Swanson knew this was an extremely important topic. Um, it affected so many. He, at this time, started meeting so many people. Um, and we did have a lot of support that he did make the decision to go in and attempt to override the governor's veto. Um, and so we, again, had to go back down and um, spend a lot of time down there talking to um, all the legislators, and we overrode his veto unanimously. Yep. That was a great day for the yeah. state of Illinois. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, um, that was, I, I think as a patient, that was a, a time where there was a lot of morale and people really felt like the, a shift was, was happening because that was, that was huge. There had been other states in the Midwest in particular that had had doctor protection acts of some sort, Minnesota, mm -hmm. theirs was coming close to expiring though. And mm -hmm. there was no plan for it to be renewed. There had been other Midwest states that had talked about it, but none had been really successful. So the fact that this was successful was just, you know, was groundbreaking, particularly in, in the Midwest. But the way in which it was done, which was really grassroots, I mean, this was this was a mom on a mission with her child, a sick patient community that got behind her. Um, 
this is about as grassroots as it, it could possibly get. And that's what cha changed it. You know, there wasn't fancy lawyers. There wasn't no offense to rich. We love you, rich. <laughs> there was a fancy lawyer though on this though. And, um, and, and it still happened. I mean, it really was, you know, the, the power of, of people rallying together, but also shows this is possible in, in other states too, which is a, a part that, you know, Illinois is very proud of that. And I'm sure Jennifer will probably get to this, but we also believe that this is something that other people can take and use in their state, this model. And at some point we'll be organized in a very easy to use fashion. It's not there yet, but at some point we will condense this into some, a guide and people can figure out how to use it and download it for themselves, but we're not quite there yet. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was really, it was a major turning point for the yeah. Quick question while you guys are, you know, keep, keep having this chat, please. But I want to just highlight this bill specifically was to grant doctors immunity to treat Lyme outside of the standard guidelines, right, of the 14 days or whatever it may be of the of the antibiotics, and also to establish a task force for Lyme disease at the state level. Did the, the, the bill specifically about <clears throat> um, for the insurance where state regulated insurance plans and Medicaid should cover Lyme, did that come later or was that a part of yep. this as well? Yep, it was later. Yep, the okay. next year. Yep. Yeah, so we, you know, and I do want to emphasize, like, this This wasn't just a few meetings down in Springfield. I I lived there. <laughs> like, I, I basically lived in a hotel room. Um, Lauren was down there all the time. It does take a lot of, um, of effort. I realized very quickly that the lobbyists are there, and I was not. And so it's easy for legislators' minds to change when they're constantly being talked to by lobbyists and I'm not there. So I did have to kind of shift some things in our in our family. And Lauren was getting well enough that um, you know, she could stay with my parents while my husband was gone. And and so I did spend a significant portion of time down there. So after we passed that, um, Rep Swanson and I kept talking like there's still so much more to do. Um we had met so many patients. We did a, a shared Zoom with the Chicago group um, and, and had a bunch of patients there that could talk to Rep Swanson about how much money they have spent on, on medical care. Um, some of the cost was just astronomical. And so um, that's it was 2019 when we decided we had to kind of tackle this, this insurance um, issue. And... Um, that was probably the, one of the hardest, you know, the insurance companies are, are, um, have their lobbyists and, and, but at the same time, we already had this groundwork laid, right? We had this, this amazing support from legislators that knew the impact it was having. They heard from their constituents. And so we didn't want to wait. We didn't want to wait. We needed that groundwork. Um, and so we started the, the insurance process and ran into several hiccups with that. Um, you know, the, we, our first hearing, the insurance um, committee wasn't going to call it for vote. Um, the insurance companies had already got to them. Um, and the only reason, and I, I say this, um, <laughs> Very humbly, the only reason that that got called out of that committee was because of Speaker Madigan. 
So like him or hate him, <laughs> whatever it is, but um, Speaker Madigan um, had a friend that had been in, impacted and was in support of our legislation. And he um, went in and started talking to his members, um, the Democratic side of the, of the aisle, about the insurance, and it was able to be pushed through. Um, we had the same hiccup in um, the Senate, and the Senate um, was not going to uh, call it for vote either. And thankfully, we one of our champions on the Senate side was um, Senator Andy Menar, who is now the deputy governor. And so um, he went in and championed for us on the Senate side and got it through and um, called it for vote and ended up being unanimous. So, and it, it literally was because we had those key people, um, you know, really rallying for us, so. And one thing to note with, um, with moving these different pieces of legislation through, these were bipartisan efforts. So these were people that were not normally accustomed to working together. But when you started sharing your story and Lauren's story about Lyme, people across the aisles started realizing we know somebody, they, they either had it in their family or they had a friend or, you know, but, but, the, but they had these horror stories in their own family. It affected people across party lines. So Rep Swanson was Republican, Speaker Madigan's a, a Democrat, and it just became this bipartisan effort where people were really wor willing to work together on this issue um, in a way that I personally haven't seen it in a long time. I mean, I, I don't know if I've ever really seen that type of um, collaborative efforts. So that was that was huge for this um, being able to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So you so it's passed unanimously. Have now that are you have you been able to see or hear stories about this? Um, the insurance bill uh, operating out in the world? Like, have you been, have you heard stories about how it's actually benefiting patients? Yep. So I, the one that I sticks out to me the most um, is I had somebody um, I came in contact with. She didn't realize that I was the one, you know, spearheading that until we got to talking. And um, I think her mouth uh, jaw dropped open and was like, oh my gosh, it's you, like you were the one doing that. And I was like, yeah, yep, yep. A lot of us did it, but yep, I was down there. And um, she said that she got a five-digit reimbursement check from her insurance company. And it's it's stories like that. Like I started crying and as soon as I got the phone, I, I contacted Rep Swanson. I wanted to share with him because that's true impact. Like that's, you know, that was amazing. Like even if it just helped that one person, it was worth it. Everything was worth it. If it, even if it just helped that one person, um, you know, it's hard because there's different types of insurance. You know, we state can't regulate federal. So a lot of people are on ERISA plans or, you know, um, uh, Medicare. Um, and so those things, you know, don't apply, but, um, you know, we've done our best to try to give, some kind of avenue for people to help get insurances to to cover some of this, and it's never going to cover everything. It just it just isn't. 
Um, but it's a step, right? It's a step to try to try to bring people hope. It's a huge step. I mean, it's, it's yeah. huge. There's a lot of Lyme patients that are on Medicaid because they, they can't work. And so having this reimbursement's huge. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a big deal. Okay. So you get to the insurance reimbursement that passes. What is happening next? Next, we decided we had to start a state association. (laughs) So um, I think it was the end of 2018. We had filed our paperwork to become an official 501c3. Um, you know, we knew we knew our work wasn't done. So we started the association and, you know, it's like any small association, it takes time to get going and, and figure out, you know, exactly what your your mission is. But we felt like it was important that we are um, a public voice for the public to get information on how to properly protect themselves and And then the other part of the mission that I felt was important was doctor education. That's a big part of what we what we do and um, starting to take Lauren's story and other people's story and go to these medical providers and and start this conversation. Um, Since we had done all the legislation at that point, things for me, at least on from what I've seen with the medical society in Illinois were shifting. Um, I became very good friends with their with their lobbyists. Um, and so these things that were starting to kind of come into play. So IDPH now was starting to do, um, um, talk about doing surveillance of the ticks in Illinois, which they hadn't done before. Um, and so they had started these maps and so I just called the Med Society and I said, hey, will you, you know, put these maps out and start promoting them to the providers? And absolutely, no problem. You know, and and the the lines of communication now, um, because we worked with them on 4515, were now open. I now have um, the opportunity to be able to communicate with them and say, hey, there's an educational opportunity. Um, you know, will you promote this to your members? Absolutely. And I'm telling you, within 10 minutes, it's on their website um, or on their social media. Um, at the same time, I was, you know, starting to become friends with um, or meeting researchers and and meeting people in the in the research community. Um, I started taking ticks out of my yard and mailing them in to get them tested. Um, the first round, this is what triggered IDPH to start doing active surveillance. The ticks in my yard came back positive for Lyme, um, anaplasmosis, and Borrelia miyamotoi. IDPH didn't know uh, Borrelia miyamotoi was even in Illinois. So that's when they were like, wow, we really need to, to maybe kick up some active surveillance. And so they started designing these just phenomenal maps um, that they that they have. Um, and it's very interactive. You can see how many ticks in a community have been tested, how many are positive, what pathogens are testing positive for. Um, so I really feel like that wouldn't have happened if we didn't have 4515. Um, and so that's been a, another great success. And, you know, so we've been slowly moving through the, the nonprofit world of, 
of uh, sharing information and, and um, you know, doing events and um, fundraising, fundraising. Um, and so, yeah, it's been a, it's been a great ride. <laughs> um, so some are, what are, um, sorry, um, there's like three things going through my mind at the exact same time. <laughs> so one thing is a comment um, about the, about the maps. So once they started actually doing some active surveillance, they started finding ticks that carried pathogens Illinois, in Illinois. So some counties had um, re reported Lyme disease, well, ticks that carried Borrelia as high as, what, was it 69 or higher percent? Yeah, so this, as of right now, the state average um, of the of the counties that they've tested, I shouldn't say that one, um, is 35% of our deer ticks are positive with Lyme. Um, some of the counties up that are border Wisconsin are a lot higher. Winnebago is the worst county. At one point, it was 69%. I think it's down to like 66% now. Um, Joe Davies, I think, is around 58%. Um, Lake County is 50%. <clears throat> um, so... Basically, if you look at the map, you know, the deer ticks are coming down from Wisconsin around the middle of the state is is um, where they're where they're it's slowing down. So Peoria is like 30 percent. Um, and then what they're also finding we're finding is that, you know, we've got the Gulf Coast tick and the Lone Star tick coming up from the southern Illinois. Um, and so they're about to collide in mid state. Um, and, and, and that's, that's even more concerning, you know, that a lot of the ticks in Southern Illinois are high for rickettsia, um, testing very positive. Um, and so it's really been an eye opening, but it's also given us a great tool to be able to share that when we go back to legislators and be like, look, we, we do have a serious problem here and we need to start being reactive and not, or we need to start being proactive and not reactive. So, and then, yeah, so getting that information, that was, that was a huge part of mm -hmm. Illinois and then, um, moving forward and Matt, if there's anything you want to add, just feel free to jump in because I feel like this is the part where I know so much about what's going on. It's a little bit hard for me to pick the question <laughs> to ask because it's like, I, I'm, I'm in the middle of it a little bit now. So if you have anything you want to add, feel free to jump in. But um, so moving forward for Illinois Lyme, so you, you know, you, this, this, the, the state association, it's established and it's, it's gaining support and it's gaining um, some collaborative efforts through different um, parts of the government. Where do you see the organization going? Where would you like it to go? Oh, gosh. Well, obviously, I would like it to be um, more uh, widespread. You know, I still think we're we have an issue with, um, you know, people in southern Illinois don't know about Illinois Lyme Association. Like I was just at a did a vendor booth at a farmer's market association this this week, and there were several people that came up. I had no idea there was a state association. Um, so obviously I want, um, I want to be just as well known as, um, the 
and when I say I, I mean the the association. I want the association to be as well known as the Autism Association or the Alzheimer's Association. You know, um, I I want that um, recognition for the association. You know, um, there there's a lot of programs that I think we're just barely touching on that I think if the funding was there, we could really um, bring a lot of resources to the community. You know, um, Jenny, I don't know if you want to touch on the one that you're working on right now with the with the writers, you know, this is you, I'm happy you decided, to. yes. <laughs> I've waited a long time for this. <laughs> um I you know, so a lot of people know me because I, I'm a writer and an editor and I've, you know, worked and created a lot of content in the in the Lyme space. Um, and I finally get to bring some of that to Illinois Lyme. And we're 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 working on what that looks like, but we're creating a, 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 a initiative for writing because as you mentioned, Matt, in episode 49, Lyme <laughs> made me write. Um, you know, it's through being sick that I started a blog that then surprisingly people read shockingly people read I mean I don't know why but it's like people read and people wanted to hear more and then I, people started approaching me to write other things and I mean it, it like I didn't you know I'd never written anything in my life before I started this this blog that that built my career you know um for my future and my you know future full-time job and so I really wanted to be able to take a piece of that part of my story and bring that to Illinois Lyme because we do. So side note, the the grassroots um, organization that we had on, on Facebook that had 1200 members when Illinois Lyme became a nonprofit. Well, a few years, a few years after it became a nonprofit, we brought that under the nonprofit. So there's now like a 1500 or maybe it's 18. up to seven, oh, 1800 now. Um, patient support group that became part of Illinois Lyme. And so we still, you know, we're very much into patient support. There's a great um, group that runs monthly. And then, you know, we have this active Facebook group, um, but a, a part, and you'll know this, Matt, like, you know, such a, a part of the patient story is there's just, is money. How do you get money? You know, where where can you get funding from? And you know, like, how can you pay for um, a prescription or maybe you need a grocery bill? And so, you know, we we don't have the resources, obviously. We're not big enough to be able to fund, um, you know, extensive amounts. But I always say that, like, much of my Lyme journey was paid for in articles that, you know, <laughs> like, like, if I had to buy a supplement, I'd go, okay, that's going to take me three articles to write. It was It was quantified in articles. But I was able to do it. I had some a skill that I was growing and using and being able to 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 cultivate for money that then, you know, help pay for treatment. And, you know, I believe I have probably earned the money back that I've that I've paid out over the last decade. And so we we want to be able to bring a little bit of that to the patient. And so we're getting our funding together to be able to begin to hire some writers to help create content for us. You know, we hope to be able to work with people at all different stages of their Lyme journey, but also people 
at all different stages of their of their writing capability. So we'd like some people who are newer. We'd like some people that are a little bit more seasoned. It will be a paid opportunity. We're still, um, you know, deciding on on the rates. But then there'll also be some opportunities to work with a publication called the Outdoor Illinois Journal, which is a, a part of the Department um, of Natural Resources. It's their online, one of their online publications. And so there's some paid opportunities to get published uh, for Outdoor Illinois Journal. So there's a, there's two opportunities right now that could help somebody establish themselves as a writer, that could help somebody hone their skills. It could help somebody, you know, hopefully pay for some aspects of treatment or their, you know, supplements or medication or a grocery bill or, a, you know, electric bill, whatever, you know, it's a, it's a paid, um, you know, like freelance writing opportunity. So that's a program we're specifically working on now. It's getting underway. We're actually meeting next week to be able to, you know, kind of uh, fine tune what that would look like. But I'm very excited um, about that personally. Can I ask a follow up to that? So I, I'm trying not to say much because you guys are doing an amazing job and I'm really enjoying listening to your conversation. But if I'm listening to this podcast episode and I'm really sick, I'm bed bound or I'm not able to work, but I want to, I'm, you know, entry level writing or I'm a seasoned writer. What kind of writing gigs are we talking about here? Are we talking about writing like blogs and articles for the Illinois Lyme Association, Association website? You know, what kind of what kind of specific work are you going to be looking for to hire people to do writing jobs through this new project you're working on? So we um, have tentatively outlined four to maybe five bullet points of the type of content we're looking for. We're not looking for long, like particularly long form pieces just because that's not the type of content that, you know, the average patient can read or the average supporter of the organization. They, they just don't have time. So it's primarily blogs then, you know, and then we would pick some to go in our quarterly newsletter. Right now it's a quarterly newsletter, you know, for the time being. So if we, you know, if we have steady content, there's some things that we could do more often. But right now it's like, so we do this quarterly newsletter. So it'd be for the blog, the quarterly newsletter. Um, and then we've identified some types of topics, um, such as, um, you know, educational types of pieces. What's the what's the information that you want other people to know? It could be patients, it could be doctors, it could be um, new people looking in the world of Lyme. That's kind of um, vague. You know, it's not it's it doesn't have to be like so specific. Um, information on ticks is another one, whatever new angle there is, you know, if you, if you have a new angle on tick, tick prevention, tick awareness, we'd love to hear it. Um, there's um, studies, if you feel like you have a skill to be able to um, take a, a new study that's out and be able to explain it for the average person in, you know, uh, 500, 600, 700 words, that would be a, a great asset. Um, it's a lot of things is like, I don't have time to do um, all of it myself for the content aspect of it. And I don't want it just to be my voice. I want, we want to expand the, the voice, you know? And so um, that's, you know, also why we're doing this. And then there's a fourth point that is absolutely escaping me right now, but it'll be on our website at some point soon. <laughs> That's all right. But as a follow-up, do you, do you have to be an Illinois state resident to be able to apply for this or to, to you know seek work, paid work through, through this? So as long as um, it, the funding comes from the grant that we have, which is um, in conjunction with the uh, 
Department of Natural Resources, um, then yes, you'd be well. So you either an Illinois resident or strong ties to Illinois is what we're we're looking at. And so there's a few people who have approached me that lived in Illinois for like 20 years and they moved because they needed to heal, you know, closer to their family or something. That would be somebody that we would strongly consider because they were a resident for you know 20 years. Or if there's somebody, and again, some of these logistics we're, we're still hammering out, but if there's somebody who, you know, all their family lives in Illinois and they spend a lot of time in Illinois, it's possible that that would be able to be, you know, somebody that we could include as well. So um, we're generally saying Illinois resident or strong ties to Illinois um, if we're using the, the grant funds. So, um, gotcha. and, you know, yeah. And a quick follow-up for, for Jen is, if people are listening, because people listen to this podcast all throughout America and all throughout the world, people from North America, South America, Europe, Asia, if they want to help, is the Illinois Lyme Association limited to just people living in Illinois that want to partner with you, right? Because Jenny just jumped in and now she's doing all kinds of great stuff to help you. And you have a whole team of people. But if there are people that are are sick at varying levels of their healing journey and they want to contribute... Can they reach out and still volunteer to help the Illinois Lyme Association, despite the fact that they may live in another state or another continent? Absolutely. Absolutely. We um, we would welcome a lot of volunteers <laughs> with our organization. We we have so many yes. things going that I um, Jenny and I need to clone ourselves about eight times <laughs> in order to um, keep the wheels, the wheels moving. So especially, you know, I've got a lot of things coming up on the, in the mainstream medical community. I, I've been asked to speak at numerous hospitals at this point for all of their providers um, coming up. And so a lot of the, the, you know, I don't want to say smaller things, but um, I'm going to have to focus my time on that. And then legislation is coming up again. And so there's a lot of things that may have to be put on hold because we don't have enough capacity uh, people wise to kind of keep this moving on all cylinders like we need to. And so welcome any volunteers, um, you know, to uh, be a part of our organization because that's how we grow. Um, that's how we're able to get this information out is everybody kind of joining in and 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 kicking it up. But what, one of the things that we've struggled with is I can't be at every county fair. You know what I mean? I can't be at um, every um, uh, association that wants us there as a vendor. I can't. So those definitely are opportunities that we need, um, you know, volunteers to be able to go sit at a vendor booth for a couple, you know, days or, you know, take some information that I, that content that Jenny's putting together that's available on our website um, and take that to their county fair and they could have their own booth and have a, an educational opportunity. So definitely looking for um, people that want to get involved um, that maybe they could take a couple days and go sit and um, share information about how to protect themselves from, from ticks um, with their community members. So my final comment before Jenny picks it up, and I'm I'm not going to say any more after this, and I'll let Jenny you know finish <laughs> this up with you, is we're going to have links in the show notes. So anybody listening to this podcast, we're going to have a ton of links in the show notes to Jenny's contact information, Jen, your contact information, and of course, links to the Illinois Lyme Association website and social media. But simply put, if people want to find out more, learn more, or contact you, they can also go to your website, which is il 
mimeassociation.org, correct? Yep. yep. All right. Yeah. So Jenny, if you don't mind picking it up from here, I am enjoying listening to you all so much. I know we've had you for quite a while, Jen. So I, we, I will sit back and let Jenny uh, finish it up with you. Yeah, I just have one final question. I feel like we need to bring her back for a, a, a follow up, Matt, because this is like the, the two, this is like two hours. Yes, we definitely. <laughs> we, we need a part two. And I feel like we're just scratching the surface. Um, this could put you on the spot, Jennifer, but tell me with this new year, because we're at, we're at the start of the new year. And by the time this comes out, it'll still be relatively, you know, early in the year. Um, for this year, 2024, what's one thing that you hope happens for the organization? Um, I would say funding. Funding is our biggest um, hurdle. So we've done great. Like we have a golf outing every year. We are very, very fortunate to be able to have it at TPC Deer Run in the Quad Cities, which is a PGA course. You know, we, we've definitely increased, you know, what we have raised. But, you know, just like any small business, which a nonprofit in a way is a small business, um, it costs money. Um we have a, a staff that we need to cover, you know, funds and um, funding is one of the struggles that we have as a small nonprofit. Um, we want to be able to do all these programs um, and there's a lot of things that we have on our goals, right, Jenny? <laughs> that list is um, long. The list is long, but um Unfortunately, we have to kind of put them on hold because, um, you know, we're not big enough yet. People, enough people don't know enough uh, about the organization yet that um, they're just, there's not a lot of um, private um, support. Uh, the, our primary funding comes from a line item grant with the state through the Department of Natural Resources as a grant. Um, but we have found out with legislation very quickly that things change very quickly. And this last year, we thought we were going to lose our funding. Um, I had eight legislators up at like three in the morning, literally trying to make phone calls and try to get us back into the budget because we were left out. So within within a very quick you know snap, we we would lose all of our funding, and that um, um, as an em employer is a very scary place to be. Um, because I know that my um, contractors are, you know, really counting on our organization, and I want to try to figure out the best I can how to make sure that everybody is is taken care of, and we're doing, um, you know, great quality work, and we're doing programs that the patients need, and we're doing programs that the doctors need, and we're doing programs that the public needs. And um, unfortunately, that comes with funding. So I would say funding is our big um, focus. And then I, you know, we've talked as a group. And one of the things we're really trying to raise money on is putting on a Midwest line conference. I, I am having conversations with hospitals, doctors, clinics, mainstream people that are wanting more information in Illinois. The tide with the medical community is starting to change. Um, here. And so I need to figure out how do I raise enough money that I can put on a Midwest line conference and bring in a lot of these 
phenomenal researchers, you know, like um, doc, uh, Dr. Embers and, you know, John Hopkins and, and, and um, Dr. Horowitz and Eva Shapi, and how can I get them here in Illinois when, when I have a community of providers that really are looking for different information than what has been given to them for years? Because they're seeing, they're seeing the patients. They're seeing that it's not working. Um, they're listening to, um, you know, just for an example, I, I, I've i been asked to speak at the Grand Rounds for OSF Peoria Hospital System. That is a huge hospital system. And, and we've been asked to be a guest speaker at their Grand Rounds. Things are changing. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, you know, the funding just... Uh, is a little slow. <laughs> I'll say that. So that that would be my goal. Twenty twenty four is to really um, try to figure out a plan to to be able to put some of these big projects and big ideas in place. Yep. Well, this is giving me a ton of hope for the future. Hearing that these large hospitals are now wanting you to come speak and educate at conferences and some of these same ent- entities that told you Lyme didn't exist in Illinois and told you that it couldn't be Lyme and you're crazy, are now wanting you and your organization to come and educate them is a complete 180 from where we were when your daughter was first sick. So I want to tell our listeners is not not the last time they're going to be hearing or seeing from you, Jen and Jenny, because you are an awesome person, Jen. We're so happy that Jenny Butaccio linked us up with you, Jen. We're going to certainly invite you back for follow-ups and to do other things to collaborate and we can't thank you both enough for joining our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Yeah, thank you very much for having us. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank my you. pleasure.